This is The Guardian. Just a warning before we start, this story contains descriptions of alleged torture, as well as alleged sexual assault and references to suicide. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and this is The Full Story. Imagine you're an elite Australian soldier, like SAS or well-trained infantry, and you've been captured. You've been forced to renounce your allegiance to Australia. Stripped, hooded, beaten up, speakers are playing repetitive sounds like guitar static or babies crying. You haven't slept for days, and you might even be beginning to hallucinate. But you're not in a war zone like Afghanistan. You're actually in a secret Australian Defence Force facility. Your captors, they're Australian Army officers. This is a training exercise. It's called Conduct After Capture, or Resistance to Interrogation Training. It's voluntary, and it's famous for being brutally difficult. But some former soldiers have complained that the ADF has taken it too far. They say that a training that's meant to make them strong enough to withstand enemy capture has left them traumatised. Today, are the ADF effectively torturing their own soldiers? It's Monday, the 26th of September. Joey, you've been investigating allegations about what goes on inside the Conduct After Capture course. How did you find out about this course? So earlier this year, I was approached by a former infantryman named Damien DePile. Joey Watson is a freelance reporter. And in 2019, Damien successfully completed a gruelling 81 hours of Conduct After Capture training. He told me that to pass, he had to endure a carousel of traditional torture tactics But it was during the final stage, which soldiers refer to as the humiliation stage, he alleges that the trainers put him through an experience that has caused him irreparable psychological damage. Joey, how did Damien end up there in that training course in the first place? When when did you join the, the army and why did you decide to join the army? So I joined the army in 2016. Uh, And the reason why I joined was because I was very passionate about wanting to serve my country. I I come from a family of people who have served their country. In 2016, Damien was an idealistic recruit. He completed basic training and soon after put his hand up for the famously tough infantry training. He wanted to become a combat soldier. Damien was posted to a unit in Darwin where he slipped into the life of a full-time soldier. In 2019, his battalion was readying. If you're not across the military, Argo, that means preparing to be deployed overseas. The whole unit had to set up to help prepare. He was 23 years old. Part of that process was uh, going through a lot of different courses. So a lot of people were being trained uh, to do driver's courses. A lot of people were doing combat first aid courses. The army culture really is that if if a course comes up, you just take it no matter what it is. Uh, And one of the courses that came up was a counter-interrogation course, capture course, level C. So so I I understand that most soldiers would have heard of conduct after capture or resistance to interrogation training, but for for non-army people, what does that entail? 
uh, conduct of capture level C is a practical assessment or a practical course where they put you through a realistic simulation of what sort of things you might expect to go through if you were captured by an enemy force. I put up my hand and a few other people in my platoon also put up their hand for it as well. Soon, Damien was on a plane to a secret army training facility for an experience that he said changed the trajectory of his life. The first nine hours were spent in a classroom. The soldiers were taught about army protocol and what they could and couldn't give up if they were ever captured. They were also given a sense of what they might expect over the following days and instructions for what they should do if they needed to pull out. Yeah, so one of the important things, obviously, was there was a volunteer declaration form. Um, and on it, it's very briefly spoke about the sort of stresses that you might go through. You may be stripped naked. Uh, you may go through light, physical assault, slapping and stuff like that. It was purposely vague and it was purposely, it purposely did not go into much detail about specifically what sort of things you would go through. And what about your ability to pull out of the course? What about that consent on that level? Yeah, so there, there was an ability to pull out of the course. How was that conveyed to you? So they told us that um, in order to pull out the pull out of the course, you needed to raise, I think it was your left hand, um, and basically I there was some words you had to say, but it was to the effect like, uh, stop, I don't want to do this anymore, something like that. Uh, but I'm sure, as we'll probably talk later, your ability to actually pull out of the course because of certain parts of the course um, is very restricted because of the of the psychological state you are in during that course. After a full day of briefings, the course begins. A simulation of a hostage situation. And that's when the course really starts. So you're put onto a bus. You are driven to another part of the base and they hood you and they lead you to a room you're stripped of your belongings bound in chains and you're basically stuck in this sort of cage uh, for the next however many hours while you're going through new interrogations yeah that goes on for maybe another 12 or so hours this is about interrogation can I ask about the specifics of the techniques that you're required to endure? Okay, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about the specifics of those interrogations because it's operational and uh, uh, it's the release of this sort of information could jeopardise the lives of ADF personnel if it's released to the public. So I, I, uh, I don't feel comfortable providing any sort of information about the specifics of those interrogation scenes. From public documents and former soldiers who've spoken to me on background for this story, we're able to create a sense of what soldiers are forced to withstand for the interrogation period of the course. They can vary, but over a period usually exceeding 48 hours, they're stripped to a hospital gown and asked to remain in a combination of stress positions like wall sits or crouches for hours. They're hooded with a sandbag and cuffed and exposed to noise for extended periods. They're food deprived, sometimes fire hosed. They might encounter police dogs. And most importantly, they're not allowed to sleep, which is important in understanding what happens next. Because we'd been sleep deprived for over 72 hours at this point of time, uh, we would all, most of us were hallucinating quite a lot. 
quite a few of us were having delusions. A lot of us were just really, really starting to get into that stage where we were becoming much more and more and more detached from reality. Extended sleep deprivation can lead to profound changes in mental states, including body disassociation and hallucinatory experiences. Some psychologists describe this as being similar to a state of psychosis. Why did you keep going? The idea of reputation is something that you definitely take back with you. You don't want to give off that that sense of you know pulling out because it sort of reflects poorly on your reputation and like your character and your ability to be resilient through these sort of things. This is tough, but conduct after capture is a rite of passage for elite soldiers to display the fortitude required to withstand anything. But it's what happened in the final stage of the course that Damien feels compelled to speak up about. Yeah, so... That particular interrogation started with the interrogator handing me a dildo and telling me to put it between my legs. Um, I was in a gown where there was really nothing under the gown. Obviously, it was meant to sort of indicate that it was to represent my genitals. He then made comments about my faith, being a Catholic, uh, saying that I must enjoy sexually molesting kids. And then he handed me a doll. It was a a little girl and uh, basically told me to simulate raping the doll with this dildo. No, that's not. I'm not going to do that. And he said, you know, oh, no, of course, you, you, you're going to enjoy it. Don't worry, you're a Catholic, you know. Just get into it, you know, you, you'll enjoy it. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so he grabbed my hands and started doing the motion himself with my hands with the dildo and the doll. And then he would mention, oh, you know, oh, you looked at their private parts, you know, you must be really enjoying this. And basically saying that if I didn't comply with doing these sort of motions that he would kill the other prisoners. He'd bring them into this room and went behind me, he took a Bible and he gave me this Bible and he told me to open up to my uh, my favourite passage in the Bible. I couldn't think of one off the top of my head. I think I was probably just kind of quite a bit out of it after all the sleep deprivation and the mental fatigue that I was kind of going through. I opened it up to Psalm 22 and I read out loud and I said, uh, and I think it goes something like, um, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my pleading? He basically said, take that dildo and simulate ejaculating onto that Bible. And I said, no, of course I'm not going to do that. No. He again threatened and said, I will bring one of those other prisoners in here and I'll kill him in front of you if you don't do that. It was so detached from reality, I thought that they were really going to kill one of those other prisoners. It's an authority figure. Uh, I'm in a state of extreme vulnerability. It's extreme psychological vulnerability. There was no out for me. I took the dildo and I, using the dildo, simulated ejaculating onto the Bible. That was the very last interrogation I had. So at that point in time, I was probably sleep deprived for about 80 hours. Um, And then finally they ended the course where they basically brought us to this road and they allowed us to take our hoods off and said, congratulations, the course has now ended. You don't have to worry about anything more. 
there's, there's no more tactics or anything like that. This is the end. Um, uh, go home and uh, it'll get you some dinner. Joey, that's obviously a really horrifying thing for anybody to experience. What happened to Damien after that? So he told me that he had a big sleep, a short debrief, and he thought he was okay. But eventually he told me the memory of his conduct after capture training caught up with him. I started having flashbacks, panic attacks. So I went to the mental health centre where I was posted I spoke to my case officer there who was basically organising, seeing a psychologist about what had happened to me on the course. She was breaking down in tears. She was obviously quite distraught hearing about my story. And it was only a few weeks after I told her that my story that I found out that she was resigning from her position. And she told me on her last day saying, uh, you're the reason why I'm resigning from my position. I can't in good conscience continue working for an organisation that does this sort of stuff to their soldiers. And was the psychiatric diagnosis that you had been, you had PTSD because of the course? Yes, it was very, very explicit. It said, your PTSD and your depression are directly related to this course. Uh, there were quite a few times that I had uh, what the psych, psych, uh, psychiatrists basically called quasi-psychotic episodes where I was having hallucinations uh, and different f- forms of delusions, uh, having dissociations from my body. I was just not there. Joey, I think a lot of people would be surprised that this course exists. Is this the first time that a veteran has raised concerns about the conduct after capture course? Well, this is the first time that Damien has gone on record about his experiences of conduct after capture training, like how he says it changed him. But no, he's not the first veteran to raise concerns. Trooper Evan Donaldson was once paid to maintain composure under pressure, but that all changed a decade ago when he was put through secret SAS conduct after capture training. In March of 2016, a former SAS trooper, Evan Donaldson, came forward publicly. He alleged that he'd been abused during resistance to interrogation training. When the young soldier asked to go to the toilet, what happened next left him with horrific injuries. Trooper Donaldson complained that in 2006, he endured 96 hours of physical and mental stresses that caused him lasting psychological damage. He alleged that at one point, one of the trainers had rammed their knee into his buttocks, causing a tear. He said that he needed to use toilet paper to stop the bleeding. He now wants compensation for years of lost earnings and legal bills. He took his claim to independent Tasmanian senator and veteran Jackie Lambie. Joey, you could have seen the state of that man when he came to my office. This is a bloke that could hardly stand out, stand up. He was like a little mouse. He was shaking uncontrollably. For us, it was something that we needed to further investigate and find out more, more on. A Senate inquiry was established in 2017 examining the military's use of conduct after capture training. So, Senator, what what happened during the Senate inquiry? What what actually came out? Yeah, so um, when, they, when they were coming forward, it was more so the abuse. I mean, I know that there is certain drills that you need to run all people in our military so they in case they become a hostage but seriously there is a very fine line of using sexual abuse to get your point across which is what we were hearing in some of those submissions 
uh, and the hands-on roughness of your own people doing that to you, your own people, rather than the enemy. And I found that very disturbing because having that done and trusting your own people around you, the people that are supposed to stand in front of you and take a round if need be, absolutely abusing you is quite frankly disgusting. And I'm not sure how that is supposed to get you ready to be effective as a prisoner of war, to be honest with you. When you start losing trust in your own because of the methods that they are using instead of the methods that the enemy should be using, then we've got bloody problems. We've got big problems. Evan was one of the lucky ones because his wife is a GP and the amount of time and energy that she put into getting Evan back on his feet, um, Evan's been able to get back on his feet and, you know, that's been a great success story. As for the rest of those people who put in submissions, I couldn't tell you what has happened to them. The Guardian understands that at least 10 other former soldiers gave secret testimony to the Senate, some through written submissions, others through in-person testimony, all about their experiences of undertaking conduct after capture and the alleged psychological aftermath. One of them hits particularly hard. We've chosen to keep him anonymous, so we'll call him John. He served in the SAS and I spoke to his wife, who we'll call Sarah. John and Sarah met as teenagers. He moved into the local area, became friends and, and um, yeah, I said to my mum, I'm going to marry, I'm going to marry that boy one day. And um, yeah, the, the rest was is history, really. He just worked just in retail and, and one of his mates, good mates, um, joined the army after high school and um, was still in touch for years after and um, the age of then 21 just said, um, what do you think about me joining the army? We got married in 97 and he went off to Kapuka, um, so before he joined, he was funny and fun and adventurous. John went on to become a signalman. He was responsible for radio comms in the SAS, a position which saw him operating with some of the best trained members of the entire Defence Force. He served briefly in the Middle East and then on a peacekeeping mission in Bougainville. But as he worked his way through the army, Sarah tells me that John transformed from being a funny, adventurous man to someone who was secretive and solitary. He didn't really want much to do with our son, who was a newborn. He found it hard to bond with him. And and then even when he tried, the, the army then would say, look, you need to, we've got an exercise for you to go and you're going to be away for two or three weeks at a time. And yeah. it got worse. Yeah, no, it, it got worse. He became more of, of a recluse. And But the kids, the kids noticed. The kids used to say, we're walking on eggshells. We have to walk on eggshells again. Just explode over nothing. The tiniest of things would make him angry, and I'm, and I'm talking about our son playing the guitar, with the you know practicing the guitar with the door open, or my daughter eating chips. The crunching sound would just irritate him, where he just yell at the kids, you know, shut the fuck up. Oh, but, but just after each exercise, or you know, I'd, I'd ask him how did it go and how was it, and he'd say things like I'd, I'd tell you, he said, but I, I'd have to kill you. Or he'd say, don't bring it up. I don't want to talk about it. He says, you're not going to understand anyway. He says, anything I tell you, you're never going to fucking understand. Use use civvies. Call me a civvy all the time. And and then when he was home, he'd say things like, I just need to get back. I need to get back out in the bush. I need to 
get back to Iraq. I need to I need to get back out there. He says, I don't feel normal here. I don't feel right. And probably the last, I'd say, four or five years, he'd say things like he, he belongs on a, he feels like he belongs on a parallel universe, he used to call it, where he was a different human being on a completely different universe. The Guardian understands that John had submitted a statement to the Senate inquiry in November 2016. It mentioned that he acted as a support staff to a conduct after capture training in which candidates were stripped, had pillowcases placed over their heads and were made to crouch on the floor. Some of the men were visibly shaking. John indicated that he was uncomfortable performing this task and felt sick to his stomach to do it to fellow Australian soldiers. It's difficult to know how much the experiences of conduct after capture had impacted John. It's possible that his experiences overseas or other factors could have played a much larger role in his psychological decline. And we'll never know for sure. In October 2017, a few months after the Senate inquiry handed down its report, John took his own life. Sarah was never told about her husband's statement to the Senate inquiry, but thinks she knows why he might have submitted it. The only reason I can think of is that he was thinking about, seriously thinking about that that stage, um, suicide, and how many other men that he'd heard of that had committed suicide and that obviously something has to be done. What they're doing is just not enough. They're, they're failing these young men and women with the you know therapy and after, after the, you know, the, the counselling um, that they deserve after serving overseas or whatever they've seen, gone through, there's just not enough help. So that's the only thing I can think of is that he was obviously trying to put something out there that may, in the future, help his fellow men and women. But for him, he, he, was, he was too far gone at that stage. Um, yeah, it was very a very difficult time. So, Joey, it sounds like you've spoken to quite a few people who have concerns about this course and the trauma that it could inflict. But there are some safeguards in place already. Can you tell me a bit more about those? Yeah, it's important to note that these courses are supervised by overseeing psychologists and medical officers with the aim of keeping participants safe from permanent physical or mental harm. But I spoke to a medic who had concerns. Just to start, could you give me a summary of your army career i gotta say my my, my military background is you wouldn't call it a career it's more like a, a you know a patchwork quilt this medical officer is dr stephen scally he recruited to the adf in the early 90s through the army he got a medical degree and in 2005 he was stationed outside of brisbane scally was asked to be a dedicated medical officer overseeing the conduct after capture course This was a difficult ask because he says he was still dealing with the scars left by his own experience completing the course a few years earlier. How fucking ironic is this, you know? I I didn't really want to be part of it. Um, I had grave misgivings about it, but just went along with it. A medical officer is present during conduct after capture training to ensure that no one is at risk of serious injury. There are psychologists present too, but Dr. Scully says that, in reality, their power to intervene was limited. The army is built on a ranking system, and medics aren't at the top. Uh, any participant in this RTI activity was able to put their hand up 
to, 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 to see the medical officer, you know, medical, I, I don't even know if they're there for medical oversight because I actually don't think, they, they definitely weren't interested in anything we would have to say about it. Uh, we weren't involved in any planning or we weren't really told what was involved. It was just you're there um, to provide medical support if someone wanted. But what would happen a lot of the times is that an officer within the command, it, it, it usually it might be like a major or a lieutenant colonel who belonged to that unit, um, want to be present during the consultation. From their risk management point of view, oh, we can do we can do anything we like because we've got medical support. So if anything did go awry, they've got someone to blame. So there's one soldier there who was, I can't remember if he was naked or semi-naked, but it was about one or two o'clock in the morning. He was sort of stockaded. And then the other soldiers brought out to watch this. And they, they said to me, oh, we're about to fire hose this guy. Is that okay? And I'm thinking, <laughs> no. But I, I still allowed it to happen because, as I say, I, I knew I didn't have the power to stop it, you know. Um, you know, and so they would, you know, be fire hosing this guy at 2 o'clock in the morning with all these, you know, like um, spectators, you know, because it, it, it was like a, it was like some sort of macabre sideshow. I forwent my opportunity to, to to say no. Why not? Why why couldn't you step in 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 a situation like that one? It, you know, I, I don't have that right of veto. I'm actually just really there to, you know, it, is it? There is no form of valid consent in the military. There are so many factors um, at, at play uh, when, when it comes to what a soldier d- decides they can do. Joey, you mentioned earlier that these resistance to interrogation courses are kind of a rite of passage for elite soldiers. Is there a way to do this training without inflicting psychological damage on soldiers? I had exactly the same question, Laura, and one answer came from a former Air Force officer who's had a lot of experience with this kind of training. G'day, this is Kernsey. Hey, Michael. How are you? Hey. Hey, Joey. Officer Michael Kearns arrived in Australia in 2001 after a long career in US intelligence. Not long after his arrival, the world shifted. 9-11 meant the possibility of war. Interrogation and counter-interrogation were put front and centre. The resistance to interrogation course was amongst the training programs that needed an update, and Officer Kearns put himself forward to help. And I was training at Canungra, uh, the SASR, Uh, the regiment, and two Sabre squadrons to go into combat uh, at a couple of different locations. um, And little did I know that 9-11 would happen and all of this resistance to interrogation would essentially be flipped upside down, turned on its head. He'd worked in and around the U.S.'s equivalent of resistance to interrogation. They called it a SEER course, Survive, Evade, Resist, Escape. Um... I went to the commanding officer of the Defense Intelligence Training Center at Canungra, who then uh, said, absolutely, if you want Kernsey to come up and help start 
training the instructors that should be trained, uh, that's what I essentially started. I took what was already written before, and it seemed like it was okay, you know, the training materials that were and I think the classification was only restricted. Maybe at the most, it might have been secret. But all of the things that were extant were good. I mean, they were good. They just didn't have professional intelligence officers who were qualified to teach resistance to interrogation. Officer Kearns's approach hinges on the concept of reality-based training, a simulation that prepares an individual for future performance through experiential learning. In this, the brain and the body absorb and process experiences as if they were actually occurring without participants having to go through traumatic experiences. In simpler terms, Curtin says that you don't need to brutalize a trainee in order for them to understand what it feels like to be brutalized. What I teach you, I take you to the concept. You can get it in your mind. I can describe it with words. I can put what's called in-role hints, right? That's reality-based training. Uh, you, you crawl before you walk, you walk before you run. You don't need to brutalize someone to understand what brutality is. I think we all know what brutality is. I don't need to teach you that. So so what, where, where's the line? What's the difference between legitimate, uh, subjecting someone to legitimate torture-like conditions and Oh, it's not torture-like, abuse, mate. Now everything we're giving... What we give is exploitation. I never tortured a human being ever in my life, ever. The training has to be done with due diligence. You're not sticking something in someone's anus or look at their eyes. Or, you know, that, that causes huge trauma. That, that's like raping a person as a child. You're not training a person. You're, you're abusing a person. And we do not abuse people. The 2017 Senate inquiry into the conduct after capture course came up with eight recommendations that compel defence to give more information to participants about the potential physical and psychological risks associated with participation in the course. It also suggested that soldiers who had completed the training should be followed up with for psychological screening. Late last year, Damien, the soldier you heard from at the beginning of the episode, took matters into his own hands when he lodged a complaint about the ADF with the Australian Human Rights Commission. His demands included structural reforms to the course, such as limiting the amount of sleep deprivation to 48 hours, or that monitoring psychologists should be chosen by the Australian Psychological Society, rather than the army itself. He also requested that his PTSD claim be recognised, and that he be compensated accordingly. He also asked for an official apology. And he's chosen to speak up. How are you feeling? Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, look, uh, it needs to happen. That's, it needs to happen. Um, at the end of the day, this is not about me. It's about wanting to actually make sure that this doesn't happen to other people, so. I am definitely not a, a person who believes that this course should be cut altogether. I think that the, uh, there is a place for this course. There is 100% uh, a good reason why this course needs to be done. And I 100% agree that there are certain parts of this course that should be kept out of the public eye, that should be kept confidential. But traumatizing our soldiers isn't going to build resilience. It's just going to cause pain and suffering.
In response to a series of questions put to the Australian Defence Department, a defence spokesperson told Guardian Australia that conduct after capture training is designed to protect and prepare ADF members should they be captured while on operations. It is voluntary and students retain the right to withdraw from training or seek support from an on-site psychologist at any time during the training. It is mandatory for two professionally qualified ADF psychology officers, an ADF medical technician and a neutral observer to be present at conduct after capture training. These observers have the power to immediately stop training if they deem it to be of risk to student well-being. Safety and personnel well-being is central to all defence training activities. Defence does not tolerate unacceptable behaviour in any form. Defence takes all allegations seriously and takes action to ensure it is dealt with swiftly and appropriately. You can read the full investigation into the Conduct After Capture course titled Australian Soldier Alleges Torture Survival Course Involved Simulated Child Rape and Left Him with PTSD. We've linked to that on the full story page. If this episode has raised any issues for you, there is help available. Open Arms provides free and confidential counselling and support for current and former serving ADF members and their families. Just call 1800 011046. You can also call the Defence Member and Family Helpline on 1800 624 608. We've linked to those support services and others on the full story page as well. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Ellen Lee Beater, Christopher Norse, and Joey Watson, who also did the sound design. Additional sound design and mixing by Daniel Simo. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Mattignoni, Molly Glassie, Gabrielle Jackson, and me, Laura Murphy-Oates. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>